Hello, I'm Chris Scotting, Chief Investment Officer of Tilney, and I'm joined today by Andrew Goodwin of Ox Oxford Economics. As a result, the opinions expressed during this podcast may not be those of Tilney. Before we begin, here is some important information. Nothing in this recording is intended to constitute advice or recommendation, and you should not take any investment decision based on its content. Any opinions expressed may be subject to change without notice. Remember that the value of investments can fall as well as rise and that you may not get back the amount you originally invested. Past performance should not be considered a reliable indicator of future returns. Different funds carry varying levels of risk depending on the geographical region and industry sector in which they invest. You should make yourself aware of these specific risks prior to investing. If you are unsure about the suitability of an investment or if you need advice on your specific requirements, you should seek professional financial advice. Oxford Economics is, unsurprisingly, based in Oxford. They have 250 economists and analysts spread around 20 offices around the world, and over 35 years, they've established a reputation for objective, evidence-based analysis, which they use to advise more than 1,500 private and public sector institutions worldwide. Andrew is responsible for UK macroeconomic forecasts and regularly commentates on the UK economic outlook in the print and broadcast media. Andrew, welcome to Tilney, and thank you for taking the time. Uh, thanks, Chris, and th thanks for inviting me. So, Andrew, can we start with the, um, the resounding victory for the Conservative Party? Financial markets obviously appear to be relieved that the radical proposal of the, of the Labour manifesto have been avoided, and many now expect some rebound in activity. What do you see uh, at Oxford of the critical takeaways of from the election and the potential impact during 2020? Uh, we, we see the two most important aspects of the election result as being what it means for Brexit and what it means for fiscal policy. Uh, in terms of Brexit, we are now really getting to the end of the, the sort of the first stage of Brexit. Uh, it's almost certain that uh, the UK will now leave the EU on the 31st of January and that it will do so in an orderly fashion uh, with the Brexit withdrawal agreements uh, ratified. The really interesting thing now is where, where the UK goes from here. Uh, as things stand, uh, the transition period will only last until the 31st of December 2020. So once you allow for, for instance, getting the negotiating stances agreed, and, uh, and that's not just in the UK, but in the EU as well, um, you probably only have nine or ten months to actually negotiate a deal and then actually ratify it as well. So that's going to be a really difficult um, sort of timetable to adhere to. Um, but obviously at the moment, the, the Prime Minister is adamant that he's not prepared to extend it any further. So for us, um, our, our baseline is that, that he'll eventually have to go away from that, that sort of view and he will actually have to extend it because the consequences of not doing so and of going over the cliff edge at the end of 2020 are, are much greater than the sort of the, the price of losing face and, uh, and extending. Um, but there is a significant risk, we think, that, that he will follow through on that promise and that he will uh, sort of, even if we have no trade deal in place, uh, bring really bring the transition period to the end uh, to an end at the end of 2020. So that I think would be quite damaging for the economy. Uh, it would result in uh, non-tariff barriers being erected uh, and tariffs being imposed on trade between the UK and the EU, uh, and that would I think certainly uh, sort of weigh on the outlook for 2021. Uh, in terms of fiscal policy, um, obviously we we, we had a, a bit of an arms race during the election in terms of sort of spending commitments. Um, less so in the manifesto for the Conservative Party. Their manifesto was incredibly thin and had very little uh, in terms of spending and, and tax uh, giveaways. But certainly in terms of what they were promising outside of the manifesto, there was a, a very strong implication that they would loosen fiscal policy during 2020. 
Uh, now, we think that that'll uh, eventually come through in the budget, uh, probably in February or March. Uh, and we think that they will adopt some looser fiscal rules and also um, sort of really sort of put in place a program of both tax cuts and also spending increases. And I think on the spending side, we, we would expect them to focus in particular on capital spending uh, as a big feature of the election campaign. Uh, and certainly, I think most economists would agree that that tends to be quite an effective way of boosting growth, uh, albeit it takes a little bit of time for, for that boost to come through. And when do you think we'll get more transparency on that? Or uh, do you think it's the, the budget process or... Um, is it essentially going to be sort of discussed over the next six months or so? I, I suspect that the uh, the government will prioritise getting getting the Brexit agreement through. Um, so I suspect that the, mo- the majority of January will be taken up uh, sort of with that. Uh, but we, we would then expect to go very quickly on to uh, onto the next bit, which we think will be the, the budget. So we suspect in February or certainly early March at the very latest, uh, you would have both a new OBR forecasts, uh, but also sort of really putting the flesh on the bones of uh, of these sort of fiscal plans. Because you know, the UK economy has effectively stagnated for the, the sort of past nine months, um, and it's going nowhere fast. It desperately needs a, a bigger fiscal boost. So the longer they wait, the longer it's going to take for that to actually have any sort of effect. And that's um, that cliff you talked about, and the, I think the European Union took nearly 20 years to negotiate a trade agreement with Latin America. So it's, it's pretty ambitious. Um, will um, the fiscal boost be enough to offset maybe some of the negatives of leaving the European Union? I think you know, your forecasts are a peaked trough impact of 1.5% fairly to GDP fairly quickly. So will, it, will that fiscal boost offset um, that, down, that downdraft? Um, we, we think you could probably mitigate the damage uh, to some extent if we have uh, sort of a, a, a no trade deal Brexit, as I think it's going to be called now in uh, in 2020. You could do a little bit of in, in terms of fiscal policy, um, but there are limits. I think particularly in terms of uh, sort of long lasting uh, sort of fiscal boosts, you, you may be able to sort of fiddle around with, for instance, tax rates to to generate a short term boost to the economy. But things like capital spending are much harder to, to get on stream very quickly. Um, you need to have the projects planned. You need to be able to get the money there, the, the sort of the construction workers on the ground to, to deliver them. So I, I'd be surprised if they, if they could fully offset it. Um, so there is this sort of, I suppose, this sort of time inconsistency. I think a lot of the fiscal boost that we're, that we're sort of expecting is, is probably aimed more at medium term and trying to improve the infrastructure, the productivity growth of the economy. Um, if we have certainly a, a sort of a cliff edge type uh, sort of Brexit in, at the end of 2020, that's going to require a much sort of shorter term remedy. So we may end up having to, to, to really go for another sort of set of fiscal measures on top of those uh, delivered in, in, in the early 2020 budget. Something with a higher sort of immediate impact, it, it, tax, very, tax changes, etc. Very much that. It's, it's a sort of case of um, we're sort of injecting some medicine straight into the vein rather yeah. than um, <laughs> sort of taking a tablet that, that lasts over a long period. Yeah. I mean, the investment will be definitely be a good... Um, good for the economy, I think, in the long term. Right? Uh, but there is that policy delay, isn't it? That policy lag in terms of the impact. Um, and, and I suppose to some extent we are looking for those policies to be more effective post the transition period because that's probably when we start to see the, 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 the greatest impact of, of leaving the European Union. Absolutely. I mean, I think uh, in, in sort of we, we've always seen Brexit as really a sort of a, a two-act play. So the first act has been sort of what's happened since 2016, there's been obviously the impact on sterling, and that's that's sort of eaten into consumer spending power. There's been this sort of long, uh, sort of drawn out, um, sort of drag on on business confidence in particular. Um, yeah, businesses who trade with the EU have not unreasonably said 
I can't commit to large capital spending projects at, at a time when you know, I may be cut off from my, my sort of biggest market. So that, that's been the sort of the first act. And we're now probably thinking for the first time really in great detail about the second part of it. And that's probably the longer term sort of effects of you know, what happens if you do erect large trade barriers with, with your biggest trading partner. Uh, and that is something that there would be, a, we think, a, a reasonably uh, sort of large short term impact from that because potentially sort of day one of, of the new relationship we we do have large queues of vehicles going through dover um and the like you know there's a lot lot more sort of in terms of customs paperwork and the like that will need to be done but it'll also have a, a sort of much much longer term effect as well so it'll reduce the attractiveness of the, of the uk as, as a place to, to do business um and you know, some of these sort of really big sort of investment decisions whether you side a car plant somewhere that's going to sort of produce cars for 10 years, 15 years. Yeah, some of those decisions obviously have already been taken to some extent and, and will then be renewed further down the track. So I, I think it's a sort of real slow burner uh, as well as having that sort of that impact immediately after the trade barriers come up. So that fiscal investment is pretty important to offset that. I think it is. I think it is. I think we uh, we, we really do sort of need, not just because of Brexit, but but also because of the wider problem about productivity growth. You know, we've had um, sort of 10 years where productivity growth has been incredibly weak. Um, not just in the UK, it's, it's a global problem, but it's specifically a, a sort of a real issue in the UK. Uh, and you know, Brexit will only exacerbate that that sort of productivity challenge. So yeah, it's integral that we, that we really start, start to, to invest in our infrastructure in particular. Uh, and make the UK a, a better place to do business. And we've talked um, principally about Brexit, but it, the last year and the UK economy slowed down. It, and uh, we are a trading nation. We, we are very dependent on our external, the external environment in the, the global economy. How much has the, the sort of slowdown in global trade as a result of the US-Sino trade issues, how much of that um, has been a, essentially been the cause of the slowdown? And and what can we expect in terms of a rebound now that there seems to be a sort of temporary truce, at least? I think in, in, in terms of sort of direct impacts, the direct impacts of the uh, of the sort of trade war is that we think has been fairly small. Um, I think even in terms of US growth, it may only have knocked about sort of two tenths of a percent off of GDP growth last year. Um, I think it's obviously a big positive that the um, sort of the stage one uh, sort of negotiations are now complete. We, we have... Uh, sort of a positive uh, sort of outcome from that because that will then uh, reduce the scale of damage it will continue to do sort of thereafter. Um, but I, I suppose we, what, what it's really sort of done, uh, sort of the, 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 the issue sort of so far, is it's been just another layer really on top of a whole sort of series of different factors that, that almost all have come together uh, to, to act negatively on the economy. Um, we've had a situation where obviously fiscal policy has been uh, quite a significant drag. Um, the, the boost from sterling from a weaker pound just hasn't 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 come through. There just hasn't been that sort of um, that that improvement in in trade sort of through that channel. Businesses obviously haven't been spending either, uh, and the consumer has had a, a sort of pickup in their in their spending power and improvement in their spending power. But it's not really been the sort of improvements that we may have had or sort of become used to prior to the financial crisis. It's still pretty weak. So really, we haven't had any sort of any real sort of part of the economy that's really firing on all cylinders. It's just been this sort of this torpor uh, sort of that, that we've been sort of enduring over the last couple of years. Uh, and I think it does require us to have some sort of trigger to really get us out of that. And I think that trigger, the most likely trigger at the moment, probably is fiscal policy and the potential for things to be boosted there. And the and international investors have been sitting on the sidelines with regard to the UK, obviously worried about the potential outcome in the election Brexit and as you say, there's a, that stagnation of investment has a lot of uh, external capital sort of sitting on the sidelines. 
and our capital account has struggled as a result and, and sterling has struggled. Does, does that foreign direct investment come back to the country now, do you think, in, in a, to a certain extent now we have clarity about the, um, from the political perspective? And, and what is the impact on, on the currency? I think at the margin there may be some impact, some positive impact, maybe from sort of, as you said at the start, the idea that we won't have a Labour government, a very socialist Labour government in the next five years. Uh, that may assuage some people in certain industries, particularly those industries uh, which were at threat of being nationalised. Um, but I think in terms of the Brexit situation, um, our concern is that if you're a, a company that trades heavily with the EU, you're, you're worried about sort of the potential for trade barriers to be erected before. Um, the election really hasn't changed that. You know, we're, we're now sort of, uh, I suppose, the, if, if you were an optimist, you would say that at least now we're confronting the trade-offs that are involved in sort of leaving the EU and we're now going to start making decisions on which industries we, uh, we prioritise and sort of which parts of the trade deal we, we look for. But I think until we've made those decisions, until the negotiations have progressed and firms in those industries can take a, a sort of view on how things are going, um, then I think it's going to be very hard for, for, really, for investors to be any more bullish about investing in the UK than they were before. Um, obviously, if we do manage to complete things on the timetable the, the government would like by the end of the year, then that's good because you know, that's only another sort of year of, year of uncertainty and then we can sort of get some clarity. Um, but I think there's, there's a good chance that things will drag on further than that. Uh, and, and therefore, you know, we're relatively sort of pessimistic about uh, investment in general, but FDI, FDI inflows in, in particular. Uh, in terms of sterling, uh, I mean, we think we, we, we've always expected um, there to be a bit of a sort of rally um, in response to either the, the actual withdrawal agreement going through or a strong enough signal that it will go through. And obviously, sort of post-election, uh, we had that briefly, um, uh, albeit sort of it has, uh, has waned a little bit over the, the sort of few days since. Um, I think sort of looking forward, we, we, we think the, uh, the sterling is undervalued against the dollar um, and it's reasonably close to fair value against the euro. So we, we would suggest that sort of over time you'd probably see a gradual appreciation against the, the dollar anyway. Um, but because, of, because it's already sort of quite close to fair value against the euro, um, then on a trade-weighted basis, not, not a huge move. Um, but I think what, what that will do, uh, certainly for the UK economy, is it will reinforce the, the sort of the disinflationary pressures that we've had recently. Um, you know, the Bank of England has been very concerned about, about sort of inflation for sort of three or four years, the potential for very low unemployment to drive up wages, push up in, uh, inflation. That obviously hasn't happened. And I think that the fact that we're now sort of in a situation where sterling strengthened a little bit and uh, certainly won't get any weaker, we, we don't think, then that, that's really going to reinforce that low inflation environment and and really sort of present quite a, quite a dilemma for, for the Monetary Policy Committee going forwards. That's a nice cue for my next and final question in terms of the, uh, the change of the Bank of England. Um, we've got a new governor due to be appointed um, early next year. Um, how do you think the policy might change? Do you think it will reflect that, continue to reflect those concerns about essentially the structural deflationary dynamics that we're seeing around the world? I, mean, I think it's a really interesting time for, for regime change um, because the, the bank has taken a uh, quite a controversial stance in the last year. It's, it's really sort of pushed against the, the sort of prevailing winds uh, around the rest of the, the global economy and, and been adamant that it's not prepared to cut interest rates despite the economy doing badly and despite inflation being below target. Um, if there was ever a chance or a time that that was going to change, then obviously regime change would, would be that, that sort of time. And I think it's particularly important because in our experience, um, there has been a tendency for the internal members of the Monetary Policy Committee to very much follow the governor 
And if the governor has a particular line, then they tend to carry the other four votes pretty closely with them. So I, I, we're going to be looking really closely. We, we think there is a reasonable chance that they will, uh, particularly if the economy uh, continues to, to really struggle, that, that the new governor could take a much more dovish view uh, in 2020. And that then, certainly in the first half of the year, before any fiscal boosters has really had time to take effect, then there could potentially be uh, a change of direction. Um, but you know, certainly, if, if, if they're, they're not of that mind, if they if they sort of come in uh, and they come in and really just want to get their feet under the table and, and sort of see what happens, then I, I could well see some monetary policy just remaining sort of as it has been uh, for really the whole of 2020. Uh, and certainly, we we don't expect any increase in interest rates until at least 2021. Andrew, thank you very much for coming in. That's been uh, very interesting and a pleasure. If um, anybody has any questions following this podcast, please email podcast at tilney.co.uk. And if you want to look out for our outlook for 2020, that will be available on the website. So thank you very much and all the best for 2020.